Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFFNOW, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guests this week are Gail Maurice and Melanie Bray. You might recognize Gail from her roles in Cardinal, Trickster, Barkskins, and Night Raiders, among other things, and she'll next be seen in Marie Clement's Bones of Crows. Melanie has turned up in The L Word, Sook Yin Lee's Year of the Carnivore, and Quebecit. And now she stars in Gail's directorial debut, Rosie, as Fred, a struggling artist in 80s Montreal who finds herself reluctantly taking in her late sister's little girl, leading to a relationship that changes both their lives. After premiering at TIFF earlier this fall, Rosie opens across Canada this Friday, November 11th. Gail and Melanie pick Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's Oscar-winning adaptation of Kristin Lunen's novel Caging Skies, starring Roman Griffin Davis as a bright-eyed, enthusiastic young Nazi in 1944 Germany, much to the disgust of his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson. But this is a story about hero worship and celebrity culture, and Jojo is so steeped in the propaganda of the Third Reich that he imagines Adolf Hitler, played by Waititi, as an enthusiastic buddy. And when Jojo's illusions are challenged by his discovery that his mother has been hiding a Jewish girl, played by Thomas and Mackenzie, in their home, well, that's when things get real. Brutally real. This is someone else's movie. So I, I love Jojo Rabbit, and I've uh, known Taika for uh, a long time, um, just through Imaginative, like being on the board of Imaginative, and of like all his films screened at Imaginative and like Boy and uh, Hunt for the Wilder People, you know, it's like, yeah. So I've known his work and him as a person for some time, but then, and I like his, the way he um, is in person. Like he's just, uh, he's very witty, but he's also super intelligent and, I, I was at a, he did a, um, a talk once and I listened to him and explain about filmmaking and it was like, he was cracking jokes, but at the same time we were learning so much and Jojo Rabbit, I, I saw it like four times and I rarely see a movie more than once. And I love it because most of his films use children and so does Rosie. And it's, I think he has a huge inner child in him and so do I and that's something I really connect with and bond with and I love that he tackled um, such heavy topics in Jojo Rabbit and using um, humor you know and absurdism like being um, Hitler and it's just so funny I think it's it's the best way you know to get people to actually understand and see how ridiculous certain things are, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, besides that, the, you know, of course the, the writing is brilliant, the visuals, everything. But yeah, I think for me, the biggest thing is what Gail was just starting to touch on, which is, I know it was very controversial for some people. They didn't appreciate the, the comedy with uh, the, you know, issues of Nazism. But I think that there's a way to do comedy and satire, right. That takes away the power from people who don't deserve power and things that don't deserve power. So for me, that's what's really interesting and sort of at the top of, of my mind. Yeah, it's been fascinating to watch the backlash happening now 
right? Like only in the last few months, I think there's been some sort of feeling that maybe after Love and Thunder that Taika's being overexposed or or that his thing is, you know, something can only be so cool for so long before it starts to get picked at. And I just remember I've interviewed him a number of times and, and I remember the feeling of watching Jojo Rabbit, um, which was like a I think it was the it was either the first or second of two back to back TIFF press screenings I had on a, like the Tuesday in 2019 in the Scotia Bank. They were in the same theater, back to back, and one of them was Joker, which I loathed, and the other one was this was Jojo Rabbit, which is like oh this is this is a People's Choice winner. This is going to be massive. This is a this is a huge statement movie from him, and it does feel like a leveling up of of his vision. But what amazed me watching it again was how earnest it is, like how there is sarcasm in there. And and it's satirical in that there are characters who are caricatures of a certain thing. And the casting is also deliberate, like casting Stephen Merchant as Gestapo is is going to make that weird and unpredictable and, and make you wonder how to how to see it. But the vision is so consistent and the point of it is so clear that like it's not comedy Hitler, it's a child's understanding of, like the whole point is that it's the opposite of the boy in the striped pajamas, right? Like the, have either of you seen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so you know, right? It's a film that ultimately that's an unfilmable novel anyway, because the whole thing depends on the reader not understanding about the Holocaust and filling in the blanks and, and learning more. But But that movie was just such a complete, whitewash seems like the wrong term, but it's a film where you, you're saying, no, it's totally possible for a kid to grow up in Nazi Germany as a commandant's son and not know. And the whole point of Jojo Rabbit is how actively Jojo is trying not to know and how how the film is so conscious about the wool coming away from his eyes and, and how Taika's performance as as imaginary Hitler is actually crucial to that, right? Because he starts off as an enthusiastic kid and by the end he's a bully and he's He's the Hitler that a child should have perceived of Hitler if he wasn't raised in a in the stew of propaganda and all of that other stuff. And the idea that somehow that can be that to to say, oh, Jojo Rabbit was dumb, it was made Hitler a cartoon, is just to completely ignore everything that he's doing. And it's exactly what you're saying. Like he's he's cracking jokes and giving you this remarkably textured, intelligent mm-hmm. worldview. Mm-hmm. And yeah, watching people actively reject that now, especially years later, like four year, three years later, has just been incredibly frustrating for me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like even the way, uh, so at the beginning when it all starts and he, what they're playing what a Beatles song. I want to hold your hand, yeah. Yeah, and then they're showing like the propaganda uh, videos and it's just, it, it just diminishes it, but it also makes it like you see how the fanaticism was like, massive and how this control uh how much control he had and um you know the same like you know people um you know when they went to a beatles concert experienced the same thing right it's fanaticism you know but it's it's like uh it's like playing with that idea but by doing so visually it's it, it he he makes it like he makes us see how ridiculous it all is. But also it's like in in the Hitler that he plays, the nuances of it, the acting, like when he starts to get scared, you know, and, and when he sees Jojo starting to like 
you know, that's the brilliance of it too with the little, uh, the child Roman, seeing his mind and the way he's starting to like realize, hey, maybe this isn't, this isn't right. And, you know, yeah. and then how, how Hitler comes back, his imaginary Hitler comes back and um, gets fearful because he's seeing Jojo, you know, um, you know, having his own ability to think things through. And it's just, it's, it's so beautiful. And the shots, I love his shots are like the wide shots in, in, in the room. Like, you know, it's like um, what the characters are on both sides of the screen and um, how they come together and go apart and sit on the floor. It's, and the colors, you know, it's just, it's just so, I love it. Yeah. I really love it. And, you know, even um, after, you know, before the bombing hits and all that, and that gets really desaturated, really, really gray, really, um, you know, it's something is about to happen. And then, you know, whereas before there's like those um, beautiful uh, yellows and greens and um, yeah. So his, his world is shifting, you know? Yeah. It's reductive, obviously, but he learns, like he learns to see, he just, he's, mm -hmm. he's understanding who the world is. And there's so many movies about a child's perspective that overdo it, right? Like they push mm -hmm. too hard with the music or the cinematography. And yeah. there's a, there's a delicacy to what he does and a, and a, a steadiness, a sure hand, I, I, just a confidence in the filmmaking that it's going to be an enveloping world and that you you really there is no way out like we don't get to leave it until jojo does until he realizes what's going on and that allows for the comedy the like the range of performances obviously uh what sam rockwell is doing which i think is great because it read his his sardonic take his sarcasm registers to the us in the audience we understand who this guy is way before Jojo, obviously Jojo does, but also we can also understand that no one else around him is paying any attention to him either. And he's just yeah. checked out. He's a hero who isn't happy with being a hero. He knows it's all over and it's and maybe he gets a an honorable decision here or there, but he's been like long since removed of any responsibility. Mm -hmm. and, and that gives you a recognizable format for the story. I get that too. Like part of it is is just building these these recognizable comfortable like sitcom premises almost that we can plug into and then exploding them just the way you know everything scarlett johansson does is slightly angry or slightly sad and yeah. and then thomas and mckenzie gets to have all the rage to get the real justifiable fury as as the jewish girl in the cupboard who again we see her humanity way before jojo's does but the joke of those scenes is that he's assuming any kind of superiority just because that's what he's been watching, right? Like yeah, he's been mm -hmm. taught that he's in charge, but he is, you know, he blew himself up on his first day of, of uh, Hitler youth camp. This is not, <laughs> it is not capable of anything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, you have anything? Yeah, well, I feel like this is 10 minutes ago, but yeah, just thinking about how, I mean, the movie is about, it's also about not following the pack, right? So going back to just how it starts, which I only really picked up on the last time with, with that Beatles song and the fanaticism and that we can sort of, that combination of the Nazis and the Beatles and a concert and that you can just kind of get caught up in following a pack in anything. And sometimes it's a positive, you know, we could say that as a, a music thing and Elvis Presley or Beatles or whatever, that it's harmless and positive, but then it's so easy to do the exact same thing 
for something that is is clearly hugely problematic and frightening. So I was just thinking about, about that before we were talking about that. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite little characters is his friend. Oh my god, me too. <laughs> you're, you know, you're, um, again, it's like kids are um, they see the world in the in such a uh, like I guess an innocent way. So like Rosie, right? It's it's in and and Asini, my other film, it's children why I like telling stories from their perspective is because they are like they are non-judgmental except in Jojo's case he's like he's non-judgmental really because he takes he's looking he knows this Jewish girl is like supposed to be a demon from what he's learned but at the same time he's his heart is open and then it's like children are so able to see beyond you know like adults where adults were were just so um, already, um, I guess, told and conservative and afraid. You know, children aren't afraid. Yeah, I think that's that's what it's about. You know, it's as well as um, like Jojo is really a hero, and he, yeah, I don't know. I I just. Yeah, there's it's it's there's just so much in this in the film that I love. Like even like um, the shoes, you know. Um, every time we saw Scarlett Johansson, like the shoes were at a certain level when they were red, and it, it just it was all leading up to you know seeing it at that level when he finds them, right? Um, so, and and that wide shot of her and Jojo with the steps. You know, it's like, okay, so it's just, it's, there's so many layers of the film. Like when you think about it, you can peel, like peel them back. Um, There's a lot of symbolism, which actually is one of the things that I appreciate the most about Gail's work. Like she'll just always, always surprise me where it's like, oh, you know, like in Rosie, Jigger is the most grounded. So he's always sitting close to the ground. Like she just has like all these, you know, some are more obvious than others. And, and Gail's just really good at that. But yeah, she's made me definitely, you know, we all pick up on some, but now I feel like through working with her on her, her last few films that uh, I'm always picking up on even more and more. And yeah, like you said, the stairs, now you're that scene where, Jojo was with his mom in those steps. I mean, I think it's just a beautiful shot, but then also I could get into all kinds of things like stairs up to heaven and all of these different things. Yeah. And then, but you said something yesterday too, about how you love the shoes because when, spoiler alert, <laughs> when he does find, find her that there's great power in not showing anything super gory and just yeah. staying at that mm-hmm. level, which I also thought was a really mm-hmm. beautiful point. And mm-hmm. that part is so heartbreaking to just have them and then that repeat of the the shoelaces as well right Mm -hmm. it worked for me because it's so the kid is so good like he we don't need to see and i i think part of it too is that we don't we shouldn't he can't process the body any further so that's where the frame ends Mm -hmm. and it just rocks us it just locks us right into his perspective where we've been the whole time obviously but this is something that of all the other things that have been going on that we've sort of been noticing, even 
even the, the camera doesn't want to show us the rest of it. It just yeah. can't, it's too, it's yeah. just too cruel. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, it's one of those things where, again, restraint can feel like pandering, but it like, it just doesn't, he, it is, it is so much his sensibility in that moment to be kind, right. To the audience, to leave it out and let it sit. Like there's no pretending that we're not seeing what we're seeing, but there are other, there are dozens of other filmmakers who would just pan up, right. And, or or go for an elaborate effect or some sort of stark pull away where we just see all the bodies hanging and he's alone in the center. It just, it's not necessary. And he gets it. He knows that. It's just quiet. He leaves us quiet with, with him. And what I love is so that then what happens is like, there's no dialogue. It's just like, Jojo is silent with that image. And then the next thing is he grabs the knife and like, you know, try, he's so angry and we don't, he's still, there's still no dialogue. There's still no dialogue. And yet the, you know, they understand each other, you know, and then he just sobs on the ground and she goes to him and it's just, again, it's just held on a wide, you know, and it's just, you see it and the character just comes in and just, it's just quite a quiet moment. That again, it, it 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 doesn't need to be elaborate. It just it allows us to stay with them, you know. And I, there's so many beautiful moments like that. Like even when, um, you know, he's missing his dad. You know, it's just a wide on on the living room, and and you see them dancing. You know, it's it's it just takes me the the, the surrounding, the quiet surrounding. Um, it's interesting because in some ways some might say he can be so over the top, like in Taika's interpretation of that, it would just be a huge moment. So like ridiculous, yeah, brilliant. Like I, I absolutely love his comedic timing and his, his acting. Um, but then, yeah, he does know, as you're both saying, when, when to have that restraint, when to actually choose the moments where nothing even needs to be said or shown. So well, it's really it's, beautiful that he can find that balance. Well, even like, even when he's, when uh, Jojo is uh, seeing like the shoes and then it goes away to the, the houses with the eyes, you know? Oh, yeah. So it's like the world is seeing, the world is seeing everything, you know? It's, it's, um, not, yeah, it's, the world is watching and the world is taking notice and the world will um, have this memory. And I think that's, that's part of it as well as, um it it was such a time in in the world that was so unbelievable and tragic and you know when you go to germany and you talk to people some people say they genuine genuine genuinely didn't know it was happening and i go what how could you not know it was like and they go, it was, they, like, they, they hit it so well, but it's, yet it's so hard for us to understand that, right? It's, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there are people who can argue that if they didn't personally burn any books, they weren't responsible, right? They just yeah. showed up at the rally or they knew the rally was going on and they didn't, they didn't attend. But it's, I get it. I mean, I, there are so many horrors, so many institutional organized horrors that we can just disconnect from. I mean, even Rosie deals with a piece of the 60 scoop, right? Or the fallout from it, which is something I was born in 1968. I've, I've grown up knowing about all of it. Um, 
I, I get it. Like I know as a, as a white Canadian, I, I'm probably responsible for some level of institutional systematic. I'm trying not to be, but you know, it's the sort of thing that it, it existed before I was born and it's, I was raised in that. Like that's, that's there. Uh, and it's something to be, to be addressed and dealt with. And so when the, when the latest revelation comes up of the mass graves or when the Pope comes to visit, it's just like, you can't say you didn't know now. It, yeah, there's yeah. no one left who can say they were unaware of all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, but also, and this is a weird way to come back to Jojo Rabbit, strangely enough, you know, I'm also, I, I was raised Jewish. My parents are Jewish and, and Taika is half Jewish and watching him play Hitler is so loaded and blew past so many people, but it yeah. is a form of reclamation. Like it's a way of saying that this, this ass, this dead asshole has no power over me and yeah. I'm going to play him as a comic care. I'm going to make fun of him for the grownups in the room while still yeah. playing into the kid's vision of it. And that's such a tightrope walk. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that's what he said too. Is like, he's probably rolling over in his grave, like a Jewish person playing him. Right. It's like, but I mean, I think, yeah, it's like, it's such a like self-loathing that he had because his mom or, or something was Jewish. Hitler's mom was Jewish or something. as well. Oh, Hitler's grandmother was supposedly Jewish. Yeah. yeah. Ron Rosenbaum wrote a really great book about that. Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the Shiny Things newsletter, my twice-weekly dispatch about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming thing. Last week, I reviewed a pair of theatrical releases, Charlotte Wills' After Sun and Martin McDonough's The Banshees of Inisherin, and this week I tackle the home editions of Top Gun Maverick and Jordan Peele's Nope, among others. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Did you miss my writing? I did too. Come check it out. Only like not since maybe Mel Brooks made the producers had there been something that pointed um, about the pervasive influence that the iconography of Hitler has. And then the producers turned it into shtick, especially in the stage play where there's just like dancing, not like everything goes on longer because it's it's a stage play and they have more production numbers and that stuff. But here it's, it kind of made you, it kind of made me question just how comfortable we've all been with the depiction of Nazi regalia in films. And this, and Jojo Rabbit sort of brings it back again to make it play as an, like it's an element of intimidation. The, the swastikas everywhere and the, and the uniforms and just the fact that everything in Berlin by the time the movie starts towards the end of the war is gray and blasted and, and ruined that the, the, that the swastika, the red on the swastika has the most color of almost anything yeah. over and over and over again. It mm -hmm. just, it really does play into the like the subconscious or the the subliminal appeal of symbolism for people who don't have anything and you you see it through Jojo's eyes so you understand that he idolizes it and he's cartooning it and he's he's you know, like it's something he desires and then gradually it just becomes poison to him as well or or becomes visible as poison to him and and that's something that's just done entirely through cinematography it's never mentioned it's never discussed it's just presented to us as something that is less and less and less appealing and that's like that's brilliant there is no scene where somebody tears it up or the Christopher Plummer ripping up the flag from Sound of Music which is totally great there but again we don't need it we just we just need to experience it through Jojo's perspective without any additional pushing yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, it's, it's yeah. Like, 
in much the same way that in Rosie, we we have that scene where a child is taken to a scrapyard to sleep because the apartment's not available. Fred takes Rosie to her favorite, to her car, to her favorite car. And it's a quiet moment where we get to understand just how desperate Fred feels, but Rosie is enraptured because she's given a way to process it that later then becomes so important to her that, you know, that's my car, don't destroy my car. It just, it's so simple. You never draw a line under it, but it's there and you can't, like, there's no way to miss what's going on. But the movie just lets it play, right? You, you, you know the audience will get that. It's the trust in, in us that makes it work. Yeah, yeah. I th- and I think that's what, um, what he's brilliant at as well, is he, does, he, he doesn't um, pound us over the head with explanation, you know? And the visuals, like he trusts the visuals. He knows, he knows what story he wants to tell. And even even um, the Jewish girl. What's her What's her name? I I forget her name. Uh, the actor Thomas and McKenzie. Yeah. Even when she says, um, you know, you're you're not a Nazi. You're just you just want to belong to a club. Yeah. Yeah. You know it, and it's so true. And that's exactly like it, most people in gangs just want to be part of, of a of a club of a family, right? He his dad is gone, so he just wants to belong even though he doesn't understand it. And that's, I think, one of the most um, powerful ways that these warmongers or whatever um, know what to tap into. Like, there's people all over the world that are using children, you know? And, and, and um, yeah, it's, this is, he, uh, Hitler was just one of them. And, you know, it's just, it just shows, um, I guess... Yeah, it's just, it's just, they're just innocent and thinking they, they don't realize what, it, what they're, what they're joining and what it means, you know, and then to see that realization happen slowly in Jojo is, is beautiful. Because yeah. he thought it was just a club kind of thing. He doesn't realize like he, he can't even kill a rabbit, you know, he's mm-hmm. not a killer. He just thought it was fun. Yeah, he's 10. He doesn't yeah. understand yeah. the murder part or the genesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is the argument too with um with you know with specifically with Trump, but also with the Canadian analogues, the people who are trying to to be the new Trump and all the American would-be's mm-hmm. as well, where they're just content to say, I hate what you hate. You know, like I don't like the things you don't like, so stand yeah. with me. And yeah. it's such a I was gonna say it's dangerous. But it's worse than that because it's yeah. it's a cynical manipulation of people who yeah. feel powerless and are just looking for something to be mad at. So if you say I like the things you like, that's nice. But I hate the things you hate means oh cool. So you don't know half the stuff I hate, but I bet you hate that too. And then eventually, whoever that is, Trump or anybody else, is going to have to say oh yeah sure I hate that too. And then it just keeps building. And that, that's exactly like, um, I guess the people that don't like Jojo is because, um, I mean, they're, they're the ones that fo- would follow Hitler, would follow the Trumps, would follow, you know, blindly, right? And it's, 
those are the ones that are probably criticizing as well. Like, I, I don't know, like you were saying, there was like a lot of criticism in the last four months. I haven't, I haven't heard it, but also um, I think it's a story to show how dangerous it is and how, how idiotic and stupid it is to blindly follow mm-hmm. one person to not know. To, and to not question not anything. question and and not use your own mind even a 10 year old can figure it out so somebody asked me um why like in rosie there's like poignant moments there's sad moments but at the next scene you're smile you're you're crying and you're then the next scene you're laughing and somebody asked me why i do that but in indigenous culture like um, we can be at a wake, we can be at a funeral, which um, we, we, they last for three days, but we're playing cards, we're laughing, we're telling jokes. And people like people like say, okay, um, you know, why are you so happy? Like, and, and you're, you know, like the world is falling apart and you can smile and stuff. But that's the whole point, I think, is we're not going to let anything beat us. So we're going to fucking smile (laughs) we're gonna fucking smile you know what I mean and so I think it's like I think like for Jojo or or I think the way I don't I I I don't really I mean I know him but I haven't seen him in years and years or talked to him like for a long time but I mean sometimes that's the way you have to get by in life is it doesn't mean you're not affected by what's going on around you it doesn't mean you're not weeping and you're not angry and you're not you know, resentful of everything that's going on, but that doesn't do anything, you know? So why not make art that has satire in it, that has, um, you know, comedy in it, but is telling like a profound story, you know? That's, that's, that's what I love about his, his work and Jojo. I think if you can't, communicate the gravity of the situation without jokes as well. Like if making a joke would destroy what you're doing, mm-hmm. um, you're not doing it very well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about like, even this is a weird leap, but even Schindler's list has a couple of Mordant jokes from mostly from Ben Kingsley, whose character is the accountant who's way in over his head and, and can only laugh at the situation he's in ironically, while still actively working to save thousands of people. Um, Gallo's humor is, kind of a a natural reflex at this point and and certainly if you're dealing with something as big as you know the nazi uh indoctrination process mm-hmm. which is ludicrous on its face yeah yeah if you can't point and laugh from the outside and you can't understand that characters on the inside would still be i mean again it's 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 Scarlett Johansson's role, right? Like she's constantly mocking things, but she never phrases it in the frame of a joke. She's just quietly pointing out to this poor child she's living with that he maybe shouldn't be listening to the people in the fascist suit. Yeah. Um, and it, she does it like it comes from a place of love and it comes from a place of concern. She gets angry with him, but she understands that if she pushes him any harder, he'll turn away. Yeah. And she and, has to keep holding out hope. And that's what I think is brilliant and beautiful about that. Her, her character as well and how Taika wrote it is she knows that she, she trusts her son enough she trusts Jojo enough and his intelligence that she trusted he's going to get it eventually and because no matter what she says and 
you know, against Nazism that it would he needed to find out and learn on his own, you know. And I think that's what's um, beautiful about the, those characters and the way they work together is we see the beauty of um, Scarlett Johansson's character because she loves him so much that she allows him to be who he is, you know. And as, again, it's like it's subtle. It's, it's um, but you know, parents understand. You know, humans understand that. And yeah. I, I, I want to ask you, Melanie, about playing an unwanting parent figure in the same way. In that, your arc is kind of, oh, we won't spoil it, but to go all the way around from from re- being repulsed by the idea of having a child around, but to to then realizing that she's the most important, she's become the most important thing in Fred's life. Is there is there a way to, to play that sort of parental instinct without overdoing it? I mean, is there a trick of like just keeping it in? How do you how do you not telegraph it to the camera, or is it all just a trust game between the two of you with the editing and the and the direction? Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question because I have like a whole I have this whole world in my mind about Fred, and I forget that no one knows. Like I literally wrote, you know, a 10 page biography. I know details about things like how did Rosie's mom die and our whole upbringing, you know, and, and all of Fred's insecurities and wounds and what happened to her, you know, all these things that I've created in my mind that seem so real to me. And then I forget until you ask me a question like that, that, oh, right. Nobody knows any of that. (laughs) So they're just, they might be seeing someone who just doesn't want to be a parent, but for me, it's so not even, it wasn't even about that. It was actually, um, you know, Fred from the beginning feels um, just really responsible and guilty for having left Rosie's mom when they were kids and not, you know, Fred's quite a bit older than than Rosie's mom was. And, and, you know, I ran away from home is my backstory and I never went back for her and I never took care of her. And then, yeah, so this child gets sprung on me at the beginning of the film. And I mean, not only do I have sort of, uh, you know, an unsteady income, uh, issues with a place to live, but I'm just like, I I can't take on this responsibility. And I've heard some people say that they get mad at Fred, which I'm like, oh, that's also really interesting (laughs) because of course I don't see her as a bad person. I think it's responsible of her to say like that I can't take on this responsibility. And she's also saying, like, go find her Indigenous family. She deserves that, you know, which unfortunately is not as as simple as it sounds, mind you. Um, So it's all coming from a place. I'm not even thinking, oh, she doesn't want to be a parent. I'm thinking she feels unworthy of having her own family and love. You know, she has all of these abandonment issues herself. Um, She can't realistically care for a child. The child should be with the family she was was ripped away from, essentially, uh, so in terms of the arc, the biggest thing also is, yeah, Rosie grows on her, but also because, like Gail said, Rosie's so non-judgmental and warms her way into all three of the adults' hearts and gives them something they didn't even know they were missing, you know. And I think what's important about Gail's story is that my character, there's no, like, white savior story, obviously, that would never be with Gail having written it. But it also spins that whole narrative on its head because to me, you know, a lot of people said, who's the protagonist, really? It's called Rosie, but is Rosie the protagonist? Is Fred the protagonist? 
And we sort of had a lot of talks about that when it was being developed. And it was like, well, it's both of them, but also it's called Rosie because it's what Rosie actually, it's not about Rosie getting saved. It's about how Rosie saves these three adults, including Fred. So I could go on and on, but <laughs> that's just some of it. <laughs> does that even answer your question? It does. Yeah, it does. And, and, and Gail too, structurally, you have to kind of, I mean, the, the, like Jojo Rabbit, there is a recognizable story that you're using to sneak in all the commentary and all the, not even sneak in, it's floating right on top of it, but you've, you've layered a fairly recognizable template with specificity and it, like really, really precise pain. And, and the idea of being seen keeps coming back and people and Rosie just not, just when, oh God, I've forgotten his, his name. Um, uh, Flo. Flo. Yeah. When Flo comes in dressed in a suit and Rosie can't handle it <laughs> because she knows who Flo is. Yeah. Um, that's something, again, you know, like you had to know that would land, but you also, that's, that's where the film has been taking us the whole time. You've, you've paved the way for that because of how Rosie responds to literally everybody she interacts with. So was that something you always knew you could do or, or did that just evolve while you were writing it? Um, like her, I, her ability to see? Um, I'm not sure. Um, I, so I wrote it because I wanted her, her character not to be judging in any way and what happened like so and which which is um she never once questioned who Flo and Mo were and why they dressed the way they dressed mm -hmm. and that's what I wanted um like and she never once questioned Fred um um and sleeping in the car she never she doesn't question those things so um and she and she does see Fred as um, an artist she does see Fred's art as beautiful more before Fred actually does believe it herself right so the next she Basquiat. what's that the, ne <laughs> the next Basquiat yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and uh and so yeah so I knew that Rosie would always um be able to see through um the adults and and it's it's how kids are right we can try that that's why so some people are afraid of children to be alone with children because they say the truth you know and so yeah and she's going to say the truth when she comes out in in his in his suit <laughs> yeah it's yeah. such a it's such a pure moment and it is that it's part of the the larger thing about childhood too where so often movies just depict children as passive. And there are a whole bunch of movies at TIFF right now uh, about kids who are hostages to their parents, like who are completely subject to what the adults do and whether or not they reconcile themselves to it and, and learn from it or whether they just collapse under that pressure is such a part of it. But Rosie, as a, the movie rather than the character, just sort of skips right past that because Rosie is completely powerless. She's She's it opens with her having nothing. And so everything is a new thing. And her perspective is so simple that she's just going to accept what, as you say, like she's going to take whatever comes, but it's not because she has to, she chooses to, uh, in a way that maybe she doesn't even understand, but 
that's the thing that saves her. And then it saves everyone else. And Jojo Rabbit is the opposite. Jojo Rabbit is a movie about a kid who won't see what's real until he's forced to and resisted kicking and screaming the whole way. Um, But we still root for both of them because they're obviously they're the children. They're the protagonists. They're the ones we're stuck with. The camera follows them and we want, we can't help but root for them. But I think the, the greater risk for Rosie is whether or not she's going to be okay at the end of this uh, because it feels like society isn't supporting, like there, there isn't a war going on for her attention the way there is in Jojo Rabbit. He's just not aware of it. Rosie is the kind of kid who in a bunch of different ways could fall through the cracks uh, as so many of the characters around her have. And, and you've just the, you as the filmmaker, sorry, I'm trying to articulate this in a way that's clearly lumpy. Um, you won't, you refuse to see her that way. There is no pity, right? There's yeah. no, there's no sense that, oh, poor kid. No, she's having a great time. She just doesn't, she gets mad when she has to, yeah. but she just doesn't feel like she's being pitied. And so she doesn't start looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that, that was always my uh, intention. I, I, I um, in real life, I can't stand when um, adults talk to children uh, in in any other way than they would, you know, to another human being because they are little human beings. So um, um, I I made sure that you know the 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 characters all spoke to her and and even um, offering her um, uh, street smarts and and um, you know like a sucker. You know, it's it's just what like they're just treating her like she's just like this little human being that's entered their lives, you know, and. Um, not no lesser than and and that's one of the things I love about Jigger's character too. He's one of my favorite characters. Is um, he? Uh, you know, she sees him and uh, and with no with no pity whatsoever. And because he, for me, he's one of the strongest ones in the film. Like one of the strongest characters and one of the most grounded and one of the most um, just yeah. A fear. He's fearless, you know, and and he also has all his culture and his identity inside of him. And, and uh, um, that's how, you know, him and Rosie are going to move forward in life, you know? Yeah. yeah. I just thought of a not, this is a non sequitur, but I got excited <laughs> because I just remembered. So um, we were talking about symbolism before and, and some of the ones I said in the film are more obvious than others, but ever since Gail and I co-produced the short Rosie, the, the butterfly has been a big symbol. Oh, yeah. And Gail was telling me about in indigenous culture, butterflies are your ancestors, right? So they're around you, they're protecting you. So they're on her shoes, which we reuse the same shoes in the, in the future. And uh, you see it more in the future when I paint the mural and things like that. But then um, that moment hanging over her bed. Yeah, they're hanging over her bed and it's on like in the short on the busker's T-shirt. Um, so she's kind of drawn to her because there's a bit of the mom element there and the spirit. But um, yeah, the, just yeah. when we just rewatched Jojo, it hadn't uh, it hadn't clicked until the butterfly is what leads him yeah. to the mom in the shoes. Right. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, is it also in Maori culture? Like is Taika doing that on purpose? And like, I, I wanted like to ask the butterfly him. being his mom, her mom, his mom's spirit. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. what leads him. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, yeah. these things echo for a reason, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're resonant and, yeah. and quietly beautiful. And I was about to ask if there's anything from Jojo Rabbit that you might've lifted or borrowed for, for uh, Rosie, but that's pretty poetic if it is. 
uh, I didn't, I didn't even notice. I didn't even <laughs> know Melanie just said that, but it might be, um, it might be, yeah. Like you say, they, that's their symbol of a, a, a spirit as well. My thanks to Gail Maurice and Melanie Bray, whose film Rosie opens in theaters across Canada this Friday, November 11th. Thanks also to Winnie Wong. She knows what she did. Melanie's not on Twitter, but you can find Gail there at P-I-S-I-M, and you can follow the movie at Rosie underscore the underscore film. You can find Jojo Rabbit on 4K, Blu-ray, and DVD from Walt Disney Home Entertainment, and streaming on Disney Plus and Crave in Canada, and Fubo DirecTV and Sling in the U.S., as well as being available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelseismovie.com. The first year of the podcast is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll like it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you've been enjoying it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>